That was sweet. Sometimes you want to just like keep worshiping, you know? Maybe one of these days. There we go. That's nice. But not today. It's not going to be that day that we do that. Mark chapter 11, as we get back to our systematic study through, and we didn't even rehearse that, by the way. That just happened. Mark chapter 11, been going through the book of Mark, verse by verse, of course. And we begin this morning by um, saying that we're going to look at a simple lesson on simplicity. One of the great dangers, I think, to someone coming to Christ, and even for a believer, as they've been walking with Christ for some time, could be religion. Now, hear me out when I say this. I'm not one of those people, and I'm not saying anything if you are, that has that bumper sticker, you know, on the back of your car that says, I'm not religious, I just love Jesus. Because religion is not a bad thing. What's bad is man-made religion. What's bad is when human tradition trumps the word of God. And that's the lesson. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me explain. Two weeks ago, before we took a break and looked at Genesis 22 last week, where we left off in Mark chapter 11, Jesus, of course, rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey there with a huge multitude shouting and crying out and praising his name in an unrehearsed, um, just spontaneous. They broke out in the prophetic psalms that they were singing to Jesus in recognition that he was indeed the Messiah of God. There was excitement as Jesus arrived. The triumphal entry we're talking about, the Palm Sunday, the Sunday before the resurrection. And if you weren't here, you can grab the CD. It's available on the back because I'm not going to go through the prophecy about the triumphal entry. But it was given in Daniel chapter 9 from the angel Gabriel to Daniel, prophesying to the very day in which Jesus would make his triumphal entry. To the day. Fantastic prophecy. A declaration from heaven that indeed Jesus was the undisputed promised Messiah of God and had been promised for 2,000 years, as we saw last week. In fact, even beyond that, a couple who was visiting last week came to me and said, so two Easter's ago, you went back 1,000 years and looked at Psalm 22. This Easter, you went back 2,000 years before Christ and looked at Genesis 22. Hard to go back much further than that. But in actuality, you can. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and the promise of Messiah is alluded to even there 2,000 years before Abraham, 4,000 years before Jesus, 6,000 years ago. And he's been saying the same thing all along. And yet, for all of the excitement that that day represented, all of the emotion, all of the hope that the event entailed, by the time it's done, our Savior has a broken heart. We're told in Luke chapter 19, after the triumphal entry, that Jesus goes back out, looks over the city of Jerusalem, and he wept. And the word for wept means he wailed, like a body-shaking kind of weeping. And here's what Jesus said, quote from Luke 19, If you had known, he's speaking to the city, even you, especially in this, your day, 
the things that make for your peace. But now, speaking prophetically going forward, he says, they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, I've said many times before that the reason why the religious community missed the Messiah, they missed Jesus' coming, was because they were expecting a conquering king instead of a suffering servant. Now, that is technically true, but really it's more symptomatic of a larger problem that was happening internally within the religion of Judaism. You see, because God had given the nation the law. He had given them the prophets. He had given them this long history, this heritage, the stories, all the wonderful stories that they had known growing up. And they took all of that foundation that God had given them and they had built upon it a system, a system of religion in which the system itself was elevated even above God and the worship of God. And so Israel, at the time of Jesus, when Jesus comes on the scene, have gotten away from the substance. They've gotten away from the roots of their religion. It became all about the external, the pomp and circumstance of the events and all that was going on. And so that's why the parable of the fig tree, which is also a miracle and a prophecy, three in one, directly follows the story of the triumphal entry. And the reason why is because it is both a description of the state of Israel at the time when Jesus arrives and is also a prediction of what would happen to the nation going forward as a result of the state in which they were in. Let's get into it and you'll see what I mean. Verse 11 from Mark chapter 11, and this is immediately at the end of the day, following the triumphal entry, still same day, it says, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So this was his pattern, except for the final night in which he was arrested, Jesus would stay in Jerusalem during the day, but then he would go back to Bethany to spend the night where he had his friends. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. A really good friend, obviously. But all Jesus does here in verse 11 is he kind of looks around. It's already late in the day, we're told. So he makes some mental notes. He pokes his head into the temple. He's going to address some things that he notices, and we're going to see that in a little bit. But first, verse 12 tells us now the next day, so now we're on Monday morning, when they had come out from Bethany, where he was staying, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. So it wasn't the season, but oftentimes in a Mediterranean climate, a, a pre-ripe figs will begin to grow on the trees at that time. They're edible. Uh, they're smaller, kind of a pinkish sort of color. It's usually in the summer that figs are ripened. That's when they get a little bit bigger. And they're, you know, that purple color, right? You just open them up and, and they look good. <laughs> I like Fig Newtons, I guess. I don't know if that counts. 
Jesus sees these figs. He's hungry. Um, but they actually, he sees no figs. He sees nothing but leaves on a fig tree when there could have been figs. So in response, verse 14, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, the first thing I wonder is, what is Jesus doing talking to a tree? I think it's kind of funny. And secondly, uh, why is he cursing or condemning, or whatever you want to call it, this tree, even though Mark has just told us, yeah, it doesn't have fruit yet, but it wasn't the season for figs. And so, you know, on the surface, it kind of stumps you a little bit. Why is he picking on a tree? I just can't figure it out. Get it? <laughs> All right, I'll... I'll stop, but this is a rudimentary lesson I'm telling you that you have to, rudimentary, get it? Moving on, moving on. It was not the season for figs, but this particular tree was full of leaves. Now, anyone, if you know anything about this, I'm not into horticulture, so I'm no expert, but you can even talk to people who grow these plants, these trees, and sometimes the figs will actually grow before the leaves. Typically, they grow in tandem. So in essence, the fact that it had leaves, but it didn't have figs, it didn't have fruit, is an indication here. It's kind of like false advertising, you know, that there was fruit, uh, the fruit was absent from the tree, but it was full of leaves. And so that's why Jesus says, okay, so fruit's never going to grow from you ever again. What did he mean by that when he said that? Well, throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree, the fig tree was a well-known symbol of the nation of Israel. Jeremiah and Isaiah and Joel and others, Micah, uh, used it as a figure, as a picture of the nation itself. And so Jesus, as he looks at this nation, as he comes to Jerusalem for his triumphal entry, he sees what looks like, symbolically, a fruitless fig tree. So you got the tree without the fruit, and you got the nation that is fruitless, spiritually speaking. Anytime you talk about fruit in the Word of God, we're talking about things that last, things that are eternal, things that matter. There are a lot of things that you and I can do in this lifetime, but not all those things bear fruit. And so when the Bible's talking about fruit, we're talking about things that actually impact the world around us that will last on into eternity. And as Jesus looks at Israel, specifically Jerusalem, in this triumphal entry, he sees a perfect picture of a nation that looks like a fruitless fig tree under the influence of the religious leaders. Sure, they were in the Holy Land and they had the temple and they were the descendants of Abraham and they had a, a pact city. I mean, it was absolutely packed. And so everything looked good externally, but internally they were very, very distant from God. The scene in Jerusalem would have given you the impression of life and energy. I mean, the ceremonies, the rituals, they're on, but the nation is not bearing fruit. And so what he does here in between the parable of the fig tree and the explanation of it, which we're going to see in a few verses, in between, instead of an interruption of the parable, is really an illustration. So the nation is lacking fruit, and here we see why. And you probably know this story or heard of it before. Verse 15, it says, So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus 
went into the temple and began to drive out. Now, anytime Jesus is driving people out of church, you know good things are not happening in that church. He began to drive out those, specifically it says, who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. So understand the reason why Jesus is disappointed here, to say the least. Because this is about money. The temple, which was supposed to be a place where people would be bowing before God and praying to God, had become a way for them to profit off of God. And so what he is doing here is he is showing his positive dissatisfaction in what is happening. Not only are they doing it, but they're doing it in a very dishonest way. Look at verse 17. It says, Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? For all nations. Remember, Israel was always supposed to be God's witness upon this earth as a testimony to what obedience to God would look like. What an abundant life could be if you walk in obedience with God. By the way, for those of you who consider yourselves born again of the Spirit of God with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, Christians, that's our role. Our role is to be a living testimony to this world of an abundant, Spirit-filled life. To all nations. That's what it was supposed to be for. But Jesus said there, end of verse 17, you have made it into a den of thieves. Sad. Because people for the Passover would come from all over the world. Because this was such a special event. You think about, you know, just for a family that doesn't have a lot of money or lives far away. Like if they could make one trip to Disneyland with their kids in their lifetime. That's like the trip of a lifetime. Well, multiply that times... 10. And that's like what it would have been for a family to try to make it for the Passover that lived far away. And the historian Josephus estimated that there would be almost a million pilgrims that would come, meaning people that lived more than 100 miles outside of Jerusalem that would make the trek down to Jerusalem. That's quite a trip. That's quite a hassle, especially if you have to, uh, if you have to lug an animal, because remember you'd have to bring an animal for the sacrifice. It's hard enough to go down I-5 in an air-conditioned car with a dog, let alone to bring a sheep from a Roman province somewhere in order to offer that up as a sacrifice. So the religious leaders came up with a solution where you could buy an animal there on the scene. And what did they do? They jacked the prices up big time when you got there to rip the people off. Even if you had brought an animal, they would um, look at the animal. They would survey the animal, right? And they would inspect the animal and they would find, conveniently, inevitably, a blemish. And you could not offer up an animal that had a blemish on it. So the poor family, ah, oh, we've come all this way to make a sacrifice in honoring God on the Passover and now we have no animal to offer up. Well, the religious leaders had an answer to that. It's your lucky day. We happen to have these pre-approved animals here on the side. And if you act now, and I can't do this all day, for just $19.99, you can get a dazzling dove or a shining sheep. And that's exactly, we laugh, but that's exactly what they were doing. They were profiting off of the fact that people had come so far. And it wasn't like they could just go, well, forget this. <laughs> I'm just going to go down the road at the other temple. And the money changers, by the way, they got into this act as well. 
the money changers, because they wouldn't accept the Roman currency, had to be Hebrew shekels, so they had to convert them at exorbitant rates. I never know, like when you go to the airport somewhere, you have to exchange your money to the currency of wherever you're going. I never know if they're, you know, treat me right or not, you know. I get $9 for every dollar. I just don't know, you know. Well, we know they were ripping them off, and that was part of what made Jesus so disappointed. Be kind of like if you wanted to give an offering to this church, and we had to convert that to Calvary bucks or something like that, at like 25% the exchange rate. You just go to find a new church. But that wasn't an option. This was the temple. And it wasn't like they could just go down the road and offer up a sacrifice somewhere else. And Josephus estimates, like I said, let's say there's a million pilgrims in town. All you had to do is get a buck or two off of each family that comes in, and that is hundreds of thousands of shekels that they would have been making. And so Jesus then, uh, obviously, he interrupts what is probably the most profitable season uh, for the religious leaders. But not only that, he has publicly and openly exposed this practice. And so their response, verse 18 says, And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. To me, I think that's the height of irony. That they were plotting to kill Jesus during Passover. Isn't that interesting? They ended up being able to pull it off. And you would think like if there was one week of the year, I mean every day is the day that the Lord has made and we should rejoice and be glad in it. But like the one day where we would not be plotting someone's demise would not be Easter Sunday for us. You would think that the one week where they would not be plotting this kind of evil would be Passover. And yet they see absolutely no problem with it. And it's picturesque, isn't it? Of what they would do. Because he would be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world as God had always had planned to do. But notice specifically what it said that their objection to him was. They were afraid of him because the people were astonished at his teaching. In other words, he would have been potentially a threat to their lucrative enterprise because he would have taught them the truth, the straightforward, simple truth that all of this was getting in the way. All that was around them, all of the hoopla of the event was getting in the way. Well, verse 19, when evening had come, he went out of the city, and then verse 20, in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, verse 21, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So not only is this a parable, as I said, it's a miracle because it's now withered away. It would also become a prophecy as well because as quickly as it dried up and withered away, so would the nation as well, seemingly, seemingly overnight in just less than 40 years. A.D. 70, from this point in time, we know that because of the judgment of God upon the nation, Titus and the Roman Empire would come in and ransack Jerusalem. And then Israel and the Jewish people would be spread throughout the world, not to return established in their homeland again until the year 1948. And even at that, with the exception of some very strong messianic Jews in the world, and praise God for them, the nation by and large to this day is still barren. And so the parable, the miracle of the fig tree then, is a picture of a nation that was supposed to represent God, 
but got away from God and now was about to experience the curse of God. Now, when we say cursing, remember that when God talks about cursing, it's not like what the world thinks of when we think of a curse. God curses in the sense that he removes his hand of blessing and the greatest judgment that God can bring upon humanity is to do just that, to allow people to experience the consequences, the natural consequences for their actions. Israel had done it all throughout their history. They had rebelled from God. They had got themselves in a mess. They cried out to God. He would deliver them again and again and again. Now, in this instance, he cannot. You want to know why? Because they've rejected his Messiah. So the only way that you can be reunited, relinked, religion, that's what it means, back to God is to accept his Messiah. And if you won't do that, then there is no peace with God. said, if you only knew the things that make for your peace, and they should have known, but they had rejected the Messiah. And so I think the question that we have to ask is, how is it that the religion, the nation of Judaism, how could it have gotten so far away from God? Why did this happen? How did they drift? Given their heritage, given their resources, given the stories, given the Old Testament truths that they had, the prophets, all of those things, such a wealth of knowledge and history that no other country had ever had up until that point, how did they get so far away from God? And the reason why we have to ask that question is because if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a Christian like me, we have a heritage. We have stories. We have the truth. We have all these wonderful things that we cling to as well. And we have to make sure as a people that we don't get complacent as well, corporately as a body of Christ, but also individually within your heart to the point where we begin to drift away from God as well. And so I've pulled out a few what I would call obstacles to a fruitful life, okay? There's only 24 of them, so relax. I'm just kidding. There's just three, just three. Number one. Number one, and here's, I think, the foundation of where the problem lied. As it said there in verse 20, it says, the fig tree dried up from the roots. So ultimately, I think that's the underlying issue. They got away from the roots when you and I as believers stop growing, stop flourishing, stop flowering as believers in Christ, when we go through dry seasons in our walk with God, it's because we've gotten away from our roots. It's because we've gotten away from the very basics of our faith, cultivating our one-on-one relationship with, the God, with God, feeding on the Word of God, spreading and planting seeds of the Word of God in other people's lives. All of the other things are good. They're fine and dandy. Christian service. Going to Bible study. And singing the songs. Putting a a check in the box of offering or whatever. It's all fine and dandy. But those things are, you know, by and large, they are, they can be, I should say, external. They can be something that makes me look good on the outside. Where I'm still kind of dry and barren on the inside. Maybe some of you are here this morning. You ever gone through the motions of your own religion. You can look at the Bible and you go, these people are just going through the motions. But have you ever gone through the motions of your own religion? I know I have. I know I have and I know I do. And so that's why every once in a while God has to come into sort of a scene like this and confront me with that. You're going through the motions. It's not real. It's not in your heart. You're dry. 
you're barren, there isn't a lot of fruit. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. They had developed a system where man-made traditions trumped God and his word and his promises for the people, and it's still going on today. There are entire systems of religion in this world whose foundation is the same as ours, but they've gotten away from their foundation. They've gotten away from their foundation of God's word. Think about it. Why did they miss Daniel's prophecy? They missed Daniel's prophecy concerning the triumphal entry simply because they were spending so much time observing their man-made traditions that they forgot to keep up on their study of God's word. Think about it. Over and over and over again, when Jesus was mixing it up with the religious leaders, he said something consistently. He said this. He said, have you not read? Have you never read? Remember that, that he said that? He said it many times. Almost as if he was suggesting that these scholars of the day weren't reading their Bibles. And I think that's because they probably were not reading their Bibles. Have you not read? So busy with the man-made traditions. So busy reading a, you know, Rabbi Shimei's commentary on the Bible that they weren't actually reading the stories and remembering what the prophets said themselves. The most theological repeated phrase of significance in the Bible is, it is what? Written. And nobody said it more than Jesus Christ. They had no time to study God's word. They had turned a house of prayer into a den of thieves. They had placed their faith in the religious leaders. They had placed their faith in man, in a system, in the temple, in religious activity, instead of where it ought to have been placed, which is my point number two. They had placed their faith in the wrong place. Jesus makes it very simple. Verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Really? Pastor, you brought us all down here today to tell us to have faith in God? Yes. That's all I got. Sorry. You can go home now. <laughs> have faith in God. I know it's simple, it's elementary, but that's the problem. People make things so complex. In fact, we had people last week, it was awesome. Several people gave their life to Jesus Christ in Easter service. Wonderful. If any of them are you, it's not complicated now. It's not like, okay, that was a good start. Now i got to do all of these things. No, it's not complicated. It's simple. Have faith in God. And it's the object of our faith that was the substance of our faith, that what, what matters here, what he's trying to communicate to them. What is it you want them to have faith in? Not in the system. Not faith in faith, as some would have you believe today. Not faith, certainly not in religion. Just a few weeks ago, I had a young a boy not anyone who attends church here, a skeptic who knew I was a pastor say to me, why is it, pastor, that you put your faith in religion? Of course I don't. But it saddens me that he thinks that. Because I think the impression that the unbelieving world has sometimes is that we as Christians put our faith in religion when we really put our faith in God. And by the way, that is the only surefire way to make sure you continue to live a fruitful life is to make sure you're placing your faith in God and nothing else. For assuredly, verse 23, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now, just a little information. So you know, most likely they're on the Mount of Olives at this point. 
The reason we believe that is because, remember, they're coming from Bethany each day to Jerusalem. And in root was a place called Bethphage, which means house of unripened figs. So it's probably where the fig trees were, right near there, the Mount of Olives, okay? The Mount of Olives is still there. So I don't think what Jesus is doing here is challenging his disciples to see if they can have enough faith to cast the Mount of Olives into the Mediterranean Sea, okay? When they would speak of a mountain, spiritually speaking, at the time, what they were talking about is something that is insurmountable, an obstacle that would be so great. How could we get around that? How could we get by that? How are we going to get by this religious system? It's in the way. This barrier to people coming to God in a simple kind of way. How are we going to do that? And the simple answer to that is an undivided, confident, and singularly focused faith in God and God alone. And when that happens, then verse 24, he says, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. I just want you to know real quick thing about prayer here. What Jesus is not saying that you as a believer have like a blank check, you know, carte blanche, that whatever you say now, if you just believe enough, it'll happen because God's bound to do what you ask of him. It's important to understand, we always have to take the whole Bible together to understand the context of any one particular verse. And 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, clarifies this for us. Listen, it says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, get that? If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we asked of him. How do you have confidence that your prayer will be answered? If you pray according to his will. That's what we mean when we say in Jesus' name. So let me give you an example. It's just a simple example. But you can go up to someone and you can pray for their healing. And you can pray, Lord, if it will be your will to heal this person. And you can say in Jesus' name. But you don't know for sure if it's Jesus' name for that person to be healed. How do we know? Because he doesn't always heal, or at least not in our timeline. I mean, at some point you get to heaven, you're going to be healed, but not in the way that we're asking. Paul had a thorn in the flesh that he lived with. So we can pray for those things, but we don't have the assurance that we can command it to be so that it will absolutely be so. However, on the other side, there are some things that we can be sure of that will happen instantaneously because we know they're in Jesus' name. Like we can pray, Lord, draw me close to you right now. And if I really believe that without doubting, then it will be done because I know that that's according to his will. If that's what I really, really want, then that'll happen. So through faith in Jesus and the identification of his authority as God, as the Son of God, and as the Messiah of God, then we know that if we pray in consistency with his will, that there's nothing that's impossible for him to do, and we can have an unwavering assurance that that prayer will be answered. So number one, the obstacle was the system, right? Number two, they were putting their faith in the wrong thing. And then finally, number three, while we're on the subject of prayer, verse 25 says, so it says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Interesting. I think that is also a parallel here with the religious leaders too. 
because maybe of all the things they were guilty of, they were certainly guilty of establishing this system, right? They were certainly guilty of misleading the nation into placing their faith in the wrong kinds of things, but they were also at the core guilty of bitterness and envy at Jesus. Not only because he was interrupting their lucrative financial enterprise, but because he was threatening their positions of authority within the nation to influence the people, and they didn't like that. That's why they didn't like his teaching, because it was good, and they didn't want to hear it. And so they were envious in their hearts. Again, all of them at the roots, though, comes back to religion. You're threatening our religion. Our religion is bigger than you. Our religion is the answer to the problems. All of it is the problem at the source of this. The root of it is that. Notice again here, for your purposes as we wrap up this morning, verses 25 and 26. Applicationally speaking, I think it's important that we understand what God is teaching us here through his son and saying that if we have a problem, if we have anything against anyone, that we're to forgive them. For if not, then our heavenly father won't hear our prayers. It's not like God, you know, plugs his ears and goes, I won't listen, I won't listen, I won't listen. It's what it is, is that God is still working on you in one area of your life while you're talking to him about something else over here. I'll give you an example. An example would be like, Lord, please help me in my marriage when God's still telling you to forgive your spouse. See, that's the problem. He's like, I'd love to help you in your marriage. Forgive your spouse, but you're not listening to me, and so I'm not going to move on to prayer number two because you're not listening to what I said to you in prayer number one. That's what the essence of this means. It's not that God is all of a sudden deaf to his people. It's that there's something that's in the way. There's an obstacle that's in the way of you growing and bearing fruit. And whatever that is this morning, whether it's faith in religion, whether it's faith in the wrong place, or whether it's an envy or a bitter heart, whatever the case may be, I don't, I don't know, God knows. But my prayer for you this morning is that you could offer that up to God and that he could take that away and have you leave here today refreshed and recharged to bear fruit once again for him. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you do give us fresh starts like this and praise you.